92nd Street Y online media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, Inside the New Superpowers, China, India, and What's Next for the United States, features Anya Manuel with former Defense Secretary Robert Gates. It was recorded on May 18, 2016, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, first of all, thank all of you for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be with you this evening. Pleasure to be back at the 92nd Street Y. I've uh, done two book events here over the last several years, most recently in January. And I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to be here tonight, to be the one asking the questions instead of answering them. <laughs> we'll so, make you answer some too, Bob. <laughs> so, uh, Ani, I think the place to start, there, um, there have been, to the best of my knowledge, very, very few books written in recent years about China and India. Um, why don't we start by you telling us why you decided to write this book? Absolutely. First of all, thank you to the 92nd Street Y, and thank you, Bob, for being here to help me with, with my book launch when you're the true authority on this part of the world. So very happy to be here. Uh, why this book? I, as a child, lived in Pakistan, uh, right at the bottom of the Karakoram Highway, which leads to the wild west of China and near its disputed border with India. So I have been interested in this part of the world for a long time. And as I see the public discourse in, in Washington and in our government, it's a little bit different. But as you see what's available publicly about China and India, uh, we seem obsessed with China. One day, they're 10 feet tall, and they're coming to get us. The other day, they're the doomed dragon, and their economy is about to collapse. Of course, the truth is somewhere in between. And we talk very little about India. And of course, both of these countries are going to have a dramatic impact on us here in the United States just in the next decade. To give you some examples, by 2030, the two countries will have 3 billion people between them, 100 million more in India than in China. And they will be the world's largest middle classes, so our companies will be selling to them. We can't even think about trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems without them climate change being the first one. By that time, India will be the largest, uh, India is the fastest growing emitter. China will be, the fast, will be the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and India the third largest. So problems that we used to think we could solve just between the US and Europe, now we need both of them to solve together. So tell us, talk a little bit about the historical factors that influence how India and China interact with each other and, and how, how that is affecting their behavior today. Sure. These were great ancient civilizations. The Economist actually just had a really interesting graphic this week that showed what were the dominant economies in the world. And for 15 centuries, it's China and India. And then in the 1700s, suddenly the West rises. Uh, both of those countries had strangely similar histories. They both had troubles with the West. Uh, China, of course, suffered under the unequal treaties. India had British colonialism. Both of them didn't become their current state and have their current governments until the late 1940s. But they reacted to this similar history very, very differently. China seems bent on going back to the center stage 
in world history. They're the Middle Kingdom. If you go to Beijing, there is actually a great, um, a great exhibit at the National Museum. It's called The Road to Revival. How does China go back to center stage where it thinks it belongs? And India is much more at peace with its colonial past. When colonialism ended, Nehru, who was the first leader of a democratic India, said, we are going to be the representative of the downtrodden. We are going to uh, be the center of the non-aligned movement. We won't be aligned strictly with the United States or with the, with the USSR. And we are going to help the world's oppressed people. India has come out of that a little bit. But China has this drive to go back to the center of history. India, a much more gentle power and a much more gentle rise. A lot of people talk about the <clears throat> emergence of China as a great power. I always like to say that it's a re-emerging power, right. that, uh, that they were a great empire for a couple of thousand years. Granted, had a couple of bad centuries, but you know, they kind of put that behind them. And they're basically looking to be back where they were. The conventional wisdom, uh, if you just read the newspapers and so on, the general thrust is that China's forging ahead and India has lots of internal challenges. But in fact, we know that China does too. Talk a little bit about the internal challenges that both of these countries face. Yeah, I get asked a lot about the horse race between the two of them. Which system's gonna win and is India gonna catch up? I think Indians get a little bit tired of the comparison because of course, their economic reforms started 20 <coughs> years later than China's. So if you think about catching up, they're 20 years behind on their economic reforms. There are internal problems in India. I discuss many of them in the book. Uh, from and they, they affect both countries, from environmental challenges to income disparity, which is growing enormously in both countries as the wealthy get wealthier, and all the way to how they manage uh, the rise of women to how they manage dissent. It is easier for India because it's a democracy. And so it's more resilient. And when a government doesn't deliver, like the Manmohan Singh government didn't quite deliver a few years ago, you can throw the bums out. And you have Modi. But what's difficult about that is that in a democracy, as we know well, you have to compromise. So two years ago, Prime Minister Modi was here, just elected. 19,000 people in Madison Square Garden were chanting his name. They thought this is going to be the time when India really grows. And he was never going to be able to live up to those expectations. Because first of all, his BJP party doesn't have a majority in the upper house of parliament, so they need to compromise. And secondly, many of the big economic issues uh, in India are actually left to the states to decide. So when you're talking about labor reform, um, can you hire and fire workers? Can you get land for your industries? Can you get electricity for your industries, infrastructure? Those are all decided at the state level. China, of course, an authoritarian system. Easier to push through big economic reforms. But because it is authoritarian, it's brittle. And we like to say it's like a glass. You can hit it 100 times, and it'll be fine. But hit it just the right way, and it'll shatter. So those are the ways I see the different challenges. You've mentioned the environment. Uh, environmental concerns in both countries um, a couple of times. Um, it seems to me that they both continue to place highest priority on growth. Uh, 
And, and as long as they do that, what are, what are the actual prospects of either country beginning to um, get a handle on uh, the, the environmental disasters they both face? I mean, we talk a lot about the air in Beijing, but the, the rivers are polluted. Uh, there's pollution in all these other big cities. In India, the Ganges is totally polluted, uh, and they've got their own problems. But as long as, the, as long as the highest priority is growth, and to a degree, social stability depends on growth, uh, how seriously will they act when it comes to uh, the environment? China is better on this than India, believe it or not. When you go to China and you see some of their coal mines, it is staggering. 30 football fields in length, gray with the orange, huge mining trucks that look tiny like toys because the mine itself is so large. And when you see those mines, you think, boy, these guys are going to do whatever it takes to grow and to get ahead. But actually, there is a real environmental movement in China that has caught the public imagination, much more so than in India. And so China is doing something about it. They've gotten the message. China invested last year $110 billion in clean energy. That's almost twice as much as the US with 56 billion. India was way behind at about 11 billion. And India actually has a problem that's worth, worse. 13 of the 20 most polluted cities on Earth are in India, not in China. You mentioned water pollution. It is difficult in China because there's not enough water. But the pollution of water in India is really something to behold. When I was in Varanasi a few years ago, that is a holy city where many people in India go to die, many of them not able to afford to be cremated, so there are corpses floating in the water and pilgrims bathing right next to them. So India has an enormous challenge ahead. And the problem is that because they're 20 years behind in development, they're not quite willing to make the compromises that China is beginning to make on clean energy and clean growth. Hmm. So another problem that uh, you've alluded to that affects both of them uh, is corruption. And um, obviously, President Xi has his corruption, anti-corruption campaign going on that has netted about 100 senior communist officials and perhaps 200,000 lower-level officials. Um, to what degree is this serious, and is it politically motivated? Is he basically just getting rid of his enemies, uh, or is, is this a reflection of public concern with corruption? And the same issue is a big issue in China as well, I mean, in India as well. Mm -hmm. Both countries have started anti-corruption campaigns from the opposite ends of the spectrum, and neither is doing quite enough, I would argue. Uh, I actually was an attorney working on anti-corruption issues with Roger Witten, who's right here in the audience. <laughs> so we did a lot of work in China and India before these anti-corruption campaigns started. But if you look at India and China, the corruption is still just rife. When I was a young State Department employee, uh, doing work in India, some mid-level official even tried to get me involved in a kickback scheme. And I was naive and sort of sat there 
blinking, <laughs> not understanding him, and so he gave up pretty quickly. But it just shows you how normal it was that they would even try to do this with a US government official. China, just as you said, the anti-corruption campaign has been all top-down. Wang Qishan is the anti-corruption czar. He is very pro-Western. He's a very smart guy. But when he talks about corruption, you see him harden visibly. And he talks about preserving the purity of the Communist Party so it can rule for another 100 years. So that's the goal here, purifying the party. And it's hard to tell from the outside whether this is politically motivated. I think it's not entirely. I think it actually is meant to be root out corruption and purify the party. Of course, now lots of people are denouncing each other, and sometimes it's easier to denounce your enemies, and it's harder to prosecute your friends. So China, all top down. India, with its democracy, it's been entirely bottom up. In 2011, um, a gentleman named Anna Hazare, who's an elderly gentleman, looks a little bit like Gandhi, spectacles, he'd had enough, so he went on hunger strike. And thousands and then tens of thousands of Indians walked into the streets and joined him and said, we need an independent body that's going to investigate corruption in India. He didn't quite get everything he wanted. He got some better laws on the books. The Modi government has done a decent job on one particular thing, which is cracking down on the really close relationship between top-level Indian industry and, and the government. So that part is getting better. They have also created a biometric ID system, which is technical and sounds odd, but is super important. Because if you're in a village and you need to go get your pension, you used to have to bribe the local bureaucrat to get your pension. Now you put in your fingerprints in your, it's not an iPhone, it's probably a Chinese Xiaomi phone, but you put your <laughs> fingerprints in your Chinese Xiaomi phone and the pension you're owed shows up in your bank account. So they're doing some steps. India's all bottom up. China's all bottom down. What they need to do to really get there is to have an independent, fast, apolitical body adjudicating cases. Both should have a big uh, education campaign. This is what Hong Kong did, and Singapore did, and Korea did, some of the countries that have really rooted out corruption. And in some cases, it might be helpful to raise the very low salaries of public servants because it makes it harder to be corrupt. So let's, uh, let me ask one more internal question before we turn to uh, those two countries and the third country in your subtitle, which is the United States and how it relates to those two. We, as we look at the problem of extremism in the Middle East and the development or lack of development in the Middle East, we talk a little bit about how they have sidelined half the population, women. Talk a little bit about the role of women and their opportunities and how they're treated and their, uh, whether the doors are open for them in China and in India. I say in the book that India is unfortunately one of the worst democracies on earth in which to be a woman. And the Communist Party has actually been quite good for women, especially bringing women into the workforce. So on India, a lot of the right laws are on the books. Pretty good parenting leave, 
pretty good anti-harassment, sexual harassment laws, anti-rape laws. They're all on the books. But especially for women at the bottom of the income scale and at the bottom of the caste system, they are not enforced. And in typical Indian style, people will take the law into their own hands. So there is this group that I uh, talk about in one of the chapters of the book called the Gulabi Gang. It's a bunch of women who had enough. They wear hot pink saris, and there are now thousands of them. This is no longer a small group. And when they hear of a man in a village beating up on his wife, they put on their hot pink saris, take sticks, and go beat up on the guy. <laughs> Only in India. <laughs> um, women in India are not much involved in the labor force. Uh, only a little more than a quarter of Indian women work outside the home, compared to 58% in the United States and 70% in China. So that's a very big difference. And, and in India, you know, it's a shame for the sake of the women that they're not incorporated in the economy and society as much as they should be. But also, Modi is talking so much about lifting GDP growth. There is an OECD study that says, if you get women involved in the workforce, GDP growth goes up by 2 to 3% a year. So it's something they should do for their growth as well. So let's turn to uh, the US <laughs> aspect of this. The Obama administration, um, has talked about its pivot to Asia, and there's obviously a lot of interaction with the Chinese. There's also been a lot of interaction with the Indians. Uh, Secretary of Defense Carter was just there uh, recently uh, in New Delhi, um, visited an Indian base. Um, president uh, Obama was in India in January and is the only president in US history to visit India twice while president. Uh, how can the US play a constructive role in trying to influence these two countries uh, to rise peacefully, if you will? And relatedly, do we really have much influence on either country? Um, you know, just as an example, President Xi promised President Obama that China wouldn't militarize the islands in the South China Sea, and they've obviously gone ahead and done that. So talk a little bit about, about whether we really have the, the capacity or the influence to uh, impact the development and direction of, of these two huge countries. Thank you. I'll answer, and then I'm going to throw it right back <laughs> at you, since you were leading this effort for the US government. Um, I think you're right, we don't have as much influence as we like to think we have, and as sometimes the world thinks we have to influence events in a lot of these countries. India has been a real turnaround, and I think it is, India and China both are things that tend to happen in the common sense middle of US foreign policy. The policies don't change all that much from administration to administration, and I think that's a good thing. So 10 years ago, when I was in the State Department, the India was still a little bit in its non-aligned movement shell. They weren't quite sure they really wanted to be partners with us and wanted to be our friends. Uh, we did a lot to try to improve that relationship, including a civilian nuclear deal, which helped India get electricity that it needed, and it unlocked a lot of other cooperation. But I think in addition to that, 
10 years ago, India wasn't very worried about China. And now they are. <laughs> and they see China very much the way that we in the US see China. When I talk to my students at Stanford, I sometimes say, we're frenemies with China. We have to get along. There is an enormous uh, economic interdependence. Uh, and India has exactly the same thing. Huge economic inter interdependence with China, but they're getting more and more worried on their border in the high Himalayas, which is undefined, it's imprecise. There have been more and more incursions by the Chinese forces over into India, and they're not allowed to shoot, but you can check this out on YouTube. There are YouTube videos of them throwing punches at each other and then videoing it so they can put it on YouTube for the world to see. More dangerous and, uh, is that there are more and more Chinese submarines sneaking through, as the Indians put it to me, the Indian Ocean and quite close to the Indian coastline, and that has them quite worried. So India is waking up, and what they want to do is more and more partner with us, not as a formal alliance, but there is much more of a partnership than you would have seen a decade ago on military, on economic, on, on just about everything. And it's great, I think, that Obama went, that Secretary Carter is going quite frequently. The danger in all this is the more we partner with India and Japan and Australia and our other friends in the region, the more China feels that it's on the outside and that it's being balanced against, which of course it is. And so while we shouldn't stop our cooperation with India, we need to also make sure that we keep out an open hand and keep the dialogue with China going. But now I'm gonna pass that same <laughs> question back to you. <laughs> well, I think part of the problem that we have with India is that the Indians operate, and I'm no expert on India, so this is just based on my personal experience um, as Secretary of Defense and, and then um, back when I was um, Director of Central Intelligence. But the Indians seem to operate at two levels. You have the political leaders who I think really would like a closer relationship with the United States. But then you have underlying that, <clears throat> including in the defense ministry, a la layers of old socialist bureaucracy that are, that are inherited from the Nehru non-aligned period that are very skeptical of relations with the United States. And so we have been working on two or three defense agreements with the Indians for 10 years. And it has to do with, um, for example, uh, safeguarding classified information. We have sold them some very advanced C-130s, but we can't put an advanced communication suite in them until the Indians agree to the protection of, of information. And, and I've, based on what I've read in the newspapers, we may be making a little headway and getting close to a signature of that. But it has taken a long time, despite the, um, the desire of the political leadership over a period of time to improve this relationship. What may have changed in this and that may help move this forward is what the last point you made, and that is the Indians are now really concerned about China. And so their military now may have a more vested interest in getting this thing to move and, um, and to make, have a closer relationship. My own view of, 
in, in shorthand of U.S. influence or relationships with China is ironically or paradoxically that we're too soft and too hard. I think we have um, been too soft in responding to what they've been doing in the South China Sea. We should have been doing routine freedom of navigation exercises and flights over these islands from day one and regularly and making it clear we are going to do it and, and interestingly and keeping our mouths shut about it. It seems like every time we do one of these exercises, we insist on putting it on the front page. What we want to do is be quiet about it so we're not putting them on the spot every time we do it, but they know we're doing it and they know what we're asserting and they know that we are going to protect our interests, our core interests, in the South China Sea. So there are some ways in which I think we haven't reacted firmly enough uh, with the Chinese. On the other hand, in other areas, I think we've been uh, obtuse and missed opportunities to show the Chinese that we actually do want them to be um, a responsible stakeholder in international institutions. I think our decision, uh, the administration's decision, for example, not to join uh, the Chinese Reconstruction Bank uh, for yeah. Asia mm -hmm. uh, was a terrible mistake and an opportunity missed. And especially when all of our friends joined up. I mean, we were the outlier. And it was an opportunity to say, yeah, we'll work with you. This is another great multilateral institution and we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, uh, participate with you. Uh, I think that we should, I think we should be, well. all the Bretton Woods international economic institutions were established after World War II when China was not a player. Why not convene a conference and say, how, how might we go back and revise or adjust the Bretton Woods agreements in a way that takes into account the second largest economy in the world and gives them a bigger voice in how these things get done. And by the way, India, the soon to be third largest economy yeah. in the and, world. And so it seems to me that, that we're missing some opportunities to concretely demonstrate that we're actually uh, serious about having this, having this not be a zero sum game. As the three as the three powers go forward, but enough from us. Um, let's open it up for um, for questions from you all. Yes, sir. Great. You might repeat the question. Yeah, we asked, what's the probability that, there, that China will have a financial or political collapse in the next five years? I'll take them one by one. A financial collapse, I think, is less likely. We, our headlines here have been really extreme. Five signs of the Chinese economic apocalypse, the doom dragon, you know, people were just having a heyday with this. When I talk to economists, both Chinese and American, they see an underlying Chinese economy that is actually quite strong. And the problem is, just like in the US, China has two economies. So we're worried about our manufacturing sector here. There are a lot of people who have been laid off. China is, in the next year or two, going to have to lay off five to six million coal and steel workers. That's going to hurt. 
And when you go to those steel towns where there has been overinvestment and sometimes corruption, you see the empty townships where no one's living, the steel mill is running, but they're not producing anything that anyone needs, that's a real problem. But go to second tier cities and first tier cities and the shopping malls are full. Consumption in China, so the Chinese have talked a lot about moving towards an e a consumption economy and to a service economy, and they are doing both. It's imperfect, but consumption is growing at one and a half times their GDP growth, so it's growing at 10, 11, 12% a year. Service sector, same thing. And the Chinese government, while its reforms have been imperfect, and the state-owned enterprises, these big hulking coal and steel companies, um, are the hardest to reform because they're a big political class. So those are the hardest things to change. But they're doing a lot of the right things. For example, um, because of the one-child policy, the folks in China who are my age, um, they usually have one or two children, there's a couple, four parents, and eight grandparents that rely on them because this pension system isn't good enough. You think we got problems here with Social Security? They really have problems. And the healthcare system isn't strong enough, so people save every penny in case grandma gets sick. And the Chinese government is onto this. They did a huge revamping of the pension system just over the last year. It's not fully implemented, but it's getting there. Healthcare spending by the government is going up 10, 11, 12% a year. So they understand that they need to provide the social safety net so then people can go out and spend and consume and crank the economy up again. So on the economy, I don't think there's gonna be a collapse. You may have 4% growth for a year or two, and then I think we'll go back up to six and hopefully seven. On the political side, it is harder to predict. And Bob here is a Soviet specialist and the former head of the CIA. So, <laughs> and I think it's safe to say that no one predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. So I won't try to predict um, the political fall of China Well, we here. predicted it would fall, we just didn't know when. When, exactly, exactly. <laughs> just that little bit of Just that little timing. detail, that little detail, exactly. So there is a little bit of what you would call in the intel community chatter. The anti-corruption campaign has stirred up a lot of antibodies within China, and they have made Xi popular with the people, quite unpopular with a lot of the leadership, for example. In March of this year, there was an anonymous letter publicly published that called for Xi to step down because he's created a cult of personality and actually threatened his life. Uh, Wang Xishan, the anti-corruption czar, there have been numerous attacks on his life and there are rumors that there have been attacks on Xi's life. You don't know if any of this is true. You never really know what's happening in an opaque system like this, but there are forces that are unhappy with Xi. And so the only prediction I would like, and I'd love Bob's view on this too, but um, I think it's less likely that you'll see a Tiananmen Square type uprising than that you will see someone in the elite wanting Xi out and finding a way to get him out. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, my, my guess would be that <clears throat> if there were to be a radical shift, it would be an internal coup. Uh, and whether, you know, they've reorganized the military districts, and so they've put a bunch of senior generals out of jobs. Um, and, you know, you think it's tough 
you think it's tough in this country to cut a bad defense program or uh, close a base or something. Uh, the, the Chinese, at least the Chinese generals, are largely out of the private business uh, business. But I would say that <clears throat> um, the likelihood of some kind of popular uprising um, is that, that it actually is regime threatening is very low. Uh, <clears throat> there are, Anya has the exact number in her book, I can't remember, but there are something like 180,000 demonstrations or riots or whatever in, across China every year. And, and the interesting thing, and she alluded to this earlier, the, the, the regime actually be, is beginning to pay attention to some of these things. When there are terrible train wrecks or the chemical factory blows up uh, and there's a reaction inside the country because now it's hard to keep this stuff secret like they were once able to, in a way they can take steps to try and diffuse it a little bit. And, and so I think, I think if, first of all, I think the chances of a, of a major turn, uh, a major um, instability in the leadership or a regime change, if you will. If there is any, I think the chances are very small, but what, what chance there is, is more likely from an internal coup. And I'll give you just one example. One of the things that I realized when I was secretary and that our intelligence and other folks came to, concluded was that President Hu actually did not have very good control over the PLA. And there were several things that happened that made it pretty clear the PLA had acted without him knowing. Their anti-satellite shot, uh, their interference with the U.S. Navy ship impeccable a couple of years later, and then the testing of their J-20 stealth fighter for the first time two hours before I was to meet with President Hu. Those kinds of coincidences don't just happen. And it was clear who had no idea they were going to do that. She has reclaimed control of the PLA. Now if something happens, you can rest assured he knows about it. So, but the question is how many people has he antagonized and can they ever come together? I, again, I think my own view is, and I'm not a sinologist, is that, it, that the odds are pretty low. And let me say one more word, because this is, it's just an interesting topic. What's how China is managing dissent is very precarious and difficult. So we've talked about the possibility of a, of a leadership coup. When you look at dissent in China, there are really three different types. One is the 180,000 protests that Bob was talking about. These are mostly bread and butter issues. You took my house without asking. The factory is not paying me enough. Um, this river is polluted. Why aren't you cleaning it up? That's what those are about. And the regime is trying to respond hard because it's not a democracy, so sometimes it doesn't respond so perfectly. There are the people who are on the- We have a democracy and we don't, and we don't respond, respond very well. Uh, we don't respond at all. <laughs> We're pretty paralyzed, actually. <laughs> We're pretty paralyzed. I know, it's true. As the Chinese keep reminding us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then there are the folks who are on the outside of the Chinese system. The Uyghurs, the Muslims, some Christian communities, uh, some dissenters. They are really being monitored hard and cracked down on in a big, big way. The biggest wave that I think will be the hardest to control is the millennials. So when I go to China now, I lecture at Stanford, and we have a center at Beida, which is one of the 
good universities in Beijing. And when I talk to the students there, they are more outspoken than my students at Stanford. And they're all on social media. I was there about a year and a half ago, had a government translator, a young woman, and I said, so what are you doing on social media? Don't they monitor everything you say? And she's like, oh, I just keep switching. Because when you go to the new one, then they haven't figured it out yet, and they don't know what we're saying. This is the government translator, right? <laughs> <laughs> so she's not afraid. These kids have no memory of Tiananmen Square. They have no memory of a big crackdown. And there is actually a guy at Berkeley, who is a Chinese dissident now in the US, who monitors what's going on on Chinese social media. And he says, during the National People's Congress, which happens every spring, the trend in March, when this last happened, was who elected these people? They don't represent me. That's a pretty serious thing for the Chinese millennials to say. So that's another wave that we should be aware of. Another question? Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because people always assume that it's about India and Pakistan. And I repeat. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, he asked about India's nuclear posture. India has nuclear weapons, and is it really to defend against Pakistan or defend against China? And I think it's mostly to defend against China. They're much. The Indians are much more worried about China than they are about Pakistan. The Pakistanis are much more worried about. India, and so they're making friends with China. <laughs> so it's a complicated situation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you discussed uh, the three, China, the US, and India. I don't know if this is outside the scope, but Russia, at least militarily, in terms of another balancing aspect. Uh, how, what are their relationships vis-a-vis -vis each other in Russia and ours in terms of possibly a partnership? You want me to do that? Sure. So I think that um, Russia likes to have, and Putin likes to have big headlines about him visiting China and about big deals with China. But, and, and they announced a while back a big uh, gas project, gas pipeline project and sale. They still haven't agreed to the specific terms because the Chinese are demanding a price that's so low the Russians can't, won't do it. So there's a lot more rhetoric surrounding Russo-Chinese relations than there is reality. The truth of the matter is they hate each other. And the Russians basically have this giant, one of the things that happened when the Soviet Union collapsed was that the Soviet Union went from about 300 million people to 140 million people. And the country is essentially vacant east of the Urals. And there are already huge numbers of Chinese that have crossed the border legally, but who work in Vladivostok and in a lot of the eastern cities in, in Russia and, uh, and are in business out there. And it scares the hell out of the Russians because they got all this empty space and they have over a billion Chinese looking across that border. So I think that, frankly, the possibility of Russia and China developing some kind of a very close relationship. Us with well, our relationship with Russia, um, well, that, it's hard to 
give a short answer to that. Let me just say, I think that, I believe we, to a considerable extent, have mishandled the relationship with Russia, and particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think we, we in the West, in the US, but in the West generally, dramatically underestimated the magnitude of the humiliation for Russia of what happened. Because it was not just the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was the collapse of the Russian Empire. So they lost all of Central Asia, they lost Ukraine, they lost the Baltic states. Russia's borders today are roughly what they were before Catherine the Great became empress. And, and they saw us and the West trying to take advantage of their weakness in the 90s. So what you are seeing, in my view, on the part of Putin is an effort to reestablish Russia as a great power, a power that has to be taken seriously, and therefore uh, the, inter in the, the uh, intervention in Syria, which makes it clear that any solution in Syria must involve Russia and probably have Russia in the chair, uh, as well as a second general uh, theme and uh, strategy on his part, which is as old as the Russian Empire, which is basically to have friendly states or frozen conflicts on Russia's periphery uh, for its own protection. So that's, that helps explain the problems in eastern Ukraine, Crimea, the trouble that they're giving in transit in Istria, in Moldova, Belarus, and the threatening gestures toward the Baltics. I, I think at this point, <clears throat> I don't think there's much of anything that, at this point in the Obama administration uh, that can be done. Uh, and whether a new president can establish a different kind of relationship with Putin, whether Putin uh, is willing to, uh, once having established Russia as a great power again, willing to be more constructive, as he was in his very first term as president of Russia, I think is an open question. Let me add one quick thought on China-Russia, and that is, I think you're exactly right. There's a lot of pretense about how close their friendship is, but Russia is a declining power, and increasingly it's a junior partner in the relationship between China and Russia. And the Russians are a little bit racist about the Chinese. No, they're a lot racist. They're a lot <laughs> racist about the Chinese. I think they're reporters in the room. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But, um, That's okay. And the Chinese distrust the Russians. So I was talking to a big Chinese real estate investor, and I said, oh, are you doing a lot in Moscow? He says, are you kidding? There is no rule of law there, and those people are so corrupt. <laughs> There's a question over here. Yeah. yeah. Great. I think, um, as I said in the beginning, the policy towards China and India doesn't vary that much across our presidential administrations, and that is a good thing. Clinton went to India, was the first president to do so in a long time. George W. Bush doubled down, did the big civilian nuclear deal, which unlocked a lot of cooperation. Obama has been good about India as well. China, a little bit similar. Um, so I think there is some attention being paid in Washington to India, much more than what you see publicly in the press. Sometimes not enough. 
So the Indians are a very proud people, and they feel it. They feel the fact that we, as a diplomatic corps and as a nation, we are distracted by what's going on in the Middle East. We are distracted by Iran and the Iran deal. We are worried about China, and we sometimes don't quite give them their due. So that's always a little bit of attention. But I think, you know, short of, we haven't talked about Trump yet. <laughs> Trump is a whole different ball game. But by and large, um, there has been decent stewardship of the relationship for both China and India across administrations. One, one thing that uh, Anya describes in her book that I found fascinating is, that, uh, is contrasting the meetings um, when President Xi visited Seattle and how it was very formal, uh, people were kind of on edge, it was not friendly, the Chinese kind of sat by themselves, the Americans sat by themselves. We had to and, stand in line to go through security for two hours. security and everything. <laughs> and when President Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi visited uh, Silicon Valley, Three first, of all, first of all, it was hard to tell who was in the Indian party and which ones were CEOs of American tech companies. That's true. <laughs> we had three out of five CEOs on stage with Modi, iconic American companies, were Indian Americans. Google, Microsoft, Adobe, I think there was one other one. And, you know, the party just didn't stop, right? There was no security. Modi was an hour late. Everyone's chatting. They can't get anyone to sit down. So I think that's, a nice, that's actually how I start out the book because it's kind of a nice vignette and a microcosm of how the two relationships work. With China, we're always working hard to get along and we're trying, but it's not quite comfortable. And with India, it's so comfortable that sometimes we take it for granted. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. How much of a wild card for China is having North Korea in their backyard? I'll start and then okay. <laughs> continue. North Korea is getting more and more dangerous. Uh, well, you should do your gene pool line because it's so funny. <laughs> no, there's reporters present. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> so. No one quite knows if this current generation of Kims is rational, and we are worried that he's not. And the Chinese are very worried about him, because of course what happens if you have a collapse of the North Korean regime, you have a refugees of North Koreans streaming into China, which is what China is desperately trying to avoid. And that's what sometimes makes it difficult for the US and China to co cooperate wholeheartedly on North Korea. But they are not his best friend, and they are quite worried about North Korea. Yeah, I think that the thing that people don't fully understand is that China has influence in North Korea, but no control. And one of my favorite vignettes is years ago, during one of North Korea's routine famines, the Chinese were sending trainloads of grain or rice into, into China, into North Korea, and the North Koreans were stealing the rail cars. <laughs> Thanks a lot for the help. Uh, I, I think that um, there is a worry about Kim Jong-un. We, we're pretty confident that he was behind the sinking of the South Korean warship, the Chonun, the shelling of the South Korean islands, um, trying to show the military that he was tough enough to, to be the supreme leader. Uh, I tried on multiple occasions 
uh, as Secretary of Defense to engage the Chinese in a discussion about North Korea and the consequences of instability there or collapse. Their great fear is collapse. Their greatest fear is not the nuclear program, but the collapse of North Korea that sends millions of these people across the river into China. And so that's their highest priority. So they're willing to cooperate on sanctions, but only to the extent it doesn't look like it's going to bring down the regime. But, but I could not get through. They, they are unwilling to have a serious bilateral discussion about North Korea. I talked about the nuclear weapons, our concern about that, the value of doing some prior consultation and even some joint thinking about what we might do to safeguard those materials. Speaking personally, I don't have a problem if China takes them. What I worry about is somebody other than the Chinese or us taking them. So if the North were to collapse. <clears throat> but from the time I was deputy director of CIA 30 years ago, when I first started this conversation, the, my Chinese interlocutor at the time, I finished this. It's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And his response was, he looked at his watch, and he said, time for dinner. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> I didn't get a lot further when I was Secretary of Defense. So trying to figure out how to get a serious dialogue going with China about North Korea needs to be a continuing priority. But frankly, at this point, I'm not confident we'll be successful. Yes? This is a good one. Uh, the question was about cyber warfare and how does it impact our relations. Uh, fundamentally, it's a very important thing. And it, it's, you need to distinguish between three different types of cyber that we're talking about. One is cyber warfare. You know, are we going to shut down each other's electricity grids if there is a conflict? The second is government-on-government -government cyber espionage. For better or worse, it happens around the world. There's, and it will probably continue to happen. The third piece that has been very much in the news and that where China is really, it's unprecedented how much China is doing of this, that is the cyber stealing of our industrial secrets. So intellectual property stealing. And when you look at the huge brouhaha that happened before uh, President Xi came to the US in the fall, it was around this third piece that we don't do to the Chinese, and I don't think we do to anyone. And that's a very complicated issue to pick apart. So for the first time, the Chinese have said, no, 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 we, we don't agree with this, and we're going to put a stop to it. Unclear if they're actually doing that, but there are, I was just at the State Department yesterday, and the guy who's leading the dialogue on this issue says, unlike your counterpart in the intel community, these dialogues are real. And they're happening. They're not showing a ton of progress yet. But at least the Chinese are now willing to talk about that issue, which is a really important and positive development. This is, you know, we work with a lot of companies in the US. And this is having a real impact. And it's what the Chinese are starting to understand but didn't before is there's so much anti-China rhetoric right now, especially on the presidential campaign. 
the group that always was in support of good relations with China was our business community. But this issue, plus the, uh, some of the unfair trade practices, have made much of our business community so skeptical and angry at China that they're not willing to defend the relationship. We have time for one more question. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, as I think about the upcoming election, does China and or India's view of our front runners, should that, is that something I should be concerned about? <laughs> you should be concerned. We'll have Bob let the, have the last word, but I'll start. So when I talk to, so the Indians, it's a democracy. So they don't think Trump can win. I hope they're right. Um, but they get that there's crazy rhetoric on the campaign. The Chinese, some of the ones that are in our embassy get it, and some of the very sophisticated ones in the Chinese government get it, but a lot of them don't. And so their conclusion is, democracy is a disaster. <laughs> Why would you do this? And they are quite concerned about Trump, and they take some of his rhetoric uh, very seriously. And I think if he is elected president, we should take it seriously, and it would be a disaster for US-China relations. I mean, let me just say one thing. He's, he said publicly he wants to slap a 45% tariff on, on trade with China. You know, normally when you do that to a country, they retaliate. Right? They don't just do it. So let's say the Chinese market is closed to us or the Indian market becomes closed to us because we start a trade war. Trump thinks the jobs are going to come back here. Uh, I think that's unlikely because, unfortunately, they're, they're gone no matter what we do. But just Boeing alone, which manufactures all in the United States, it sells more than a quarter of its commercial aircraft to China alone. So if that market is close to us, just Boeing will have to lay off tens of thousands of workers. So the Chinese are concerned. I think I, I agree with what uh, Anya said I, on the <clears throat> Chinese. I think, it's, I, I think it's important to realize that they probably take very little at face value. So for example, I'm old enough, as are I think a few people here, to remember Watergate. The Chinese were convinced that Watergate had nothing to do with the break-in of the Democratic Party headquarters, but in fact was a conspiracy against Nixon because of the opening to China. It was all about China, not about corrupt behavior, because the Chinese could not comprehend that we would throw a president out based on what had happened. <laughs> It just was incomprehensible to them. So, so I think that it would be a mistake to underestimate the impact, particularly on authoritarian regimes, of rhetoric in the United States. Because it's never just rhetoric. You know the old line one time that Groucho Marx said, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Well, the Chinese have a hard time believing that, and I think so do most authoritarian governments because their own politics are so convoluted. So I think, I think the rhetoric is, um, uh, is, is very risky because other governments may begin to take actions based on the rhetoric before our election, not to mention afterward. Anyway, thank you all for coming this evening. It's been a pleasure.
Thanks for listening. For more information on 92Y and all of our programs, please visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 2016 by 92nd Street Y.